Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and Nick are back with a new episode with special guest Lana Seiler, Traumatic Stress Program Clinical Manager at All Points North. Lana joins us this week to discuss trauma therapy, what led her to that focus, and the programs offered at All Points North, including psychedelic-assisted therapies like ketamine-assisted. Lana also talks about the differences between clinical and rehab settings, as well as their partnership with Journey Collab to implement an alcohol abuse psychedelic-assisted therapy program. If you're interested in learning more about All Points North and the variety of treatment offerings and locations, visit the links in our show notes. Also be sure to follow All Points North and Lana on LinkedIn, Twitter, and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Lana Seiler of All Points North. Lana Seiler, thank you so much for spending time with us this week. We, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time with CEOs and entrepreneurs and investors um, and people talking about the science of this, of, you know, uh, psychedelic science um, and cannabis science sometimes. Um, but we very rarely have a therapist, an on the ground, honest to goodness um, therapist who is, is doing the good work and, and seeing what you see. So, um, we're so excited to have you on. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a really interesting and important topic. So I'm happy to be here. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I'm working in residential level of care right now at a, a facility called All Points North. I'm at the Lodge, which is in just outside of Vail in Edwards, Colorado. Um, and we are um, primary mental health and primary substance use. And we do a lot of work with trauma and uh, pretty significant depression and anxiety and um and I've been, you know, really interested in this space. I'm a trauma therapist by trade. So I am the clinical manager of our trauma department, our trauma services, I call it, because really in all of our tracks and programs, there's a lot of psychological trauma and traumatic stress-related disorders. And so um, my team and I serve um, the population that we have here to do trauma work while they're in residential, which is actually not that common. It's difficult to do deeper work in higher levels of care. Um and so why, why is that? Well, honestly, there's two major, I think, hindrances. One is people come in um, with acute issues. So people at residential, it's just a step down from inpatient. So there's the understanding that people are I hate the word fragile because I don't like to fragilize people, but in some ways are, are more fragile because um, the the psychological issues are more acute. Mm -hmm. They're either in, you know, acute detox withdrawal or they're um, or post acute, sorry, or they're in, you know, a significant mental health, you know, situation where they need 24 hour care. So 
Um, there's been just kind of a long understanding in the world of trauma that we don't really do that while people are in acute states. And, and, and I agree with that. I just think we can get creative about, you know, increasing psychoeducation and, you know, starting skill building, but framing it as trauma work and things like that. And then, you know, surprisingly, I've had people be able to do one or two pretty strong pieces of work in, in residential, and then they feel, you know, excited and motivated to continue that work, which is really what we're going for. Cause when they leave us, they need to continue. And so having people get a taste of doing something powerful like that, I think really helps people stay engaged in care. And can you talk about what first drew you to working um, in trauma? That seems like a very high intense, high focus um, um, background to, to, to want to get into working with patients in there. It's very, sensitive when it comes to it. So, you know, why did, why did you pick that specialty, I guess? Um, well, initially I did because I worked in, in primarily substance use treatment in South Florida. That's where I started my career. And I just started seeing a lot of recidivism, people coming back to treatment over and over and over. And it, I mean, to me, logically, it just kind of made sense that we weren't, there was something we weren't doing. We weren't doing enough for people. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't make it back. You know, they either take their own lives or they overdose. And I experienced a lot of that early in my career. And so I, you know, I just kind of committed to, hey, we need to raise the bar. We need to do things differently. We need to be better. This isn't just one um this isn't just one condition. There's a lot of co-occurring stuff going on with people with substance use disorder. And so we really need to be paying attention to that, I think. So that was kind of what got me started. I also am just kind of like real nerdy about it and, and loved so much like learning about, you know, what happens in our brain when we experience like, you know, high levels of chronic stress in early life. And there's just a ton of like really good research and information out there, like all the attachment theory stuff that we all know as therapists, but don't often use in practice because it's like not convenient because we're doing like short term therapy and all that. I just wanted to bring all that in. One of my passions is bridging research and practice. And that's why I'm excited to be on this, because what a lot of what we're going to be talking about is bridging research and practice, right? Like from the research place to a practical place of how we implement stuff and use it on the ground. So that was really, you know, the big driver. And then one of my supervisors who was really wonderful said to me, you know, Lana, I think you really like trauma work because there's a resolution. And he was right. That was really insightful. I'm someone who likes to see um, something be resolved. And in trauma work, it's unique in that way. You know, we can do a piece of work, like a psychodrama piece of work or something, you know, using EMDR, these modalities that people can go from a distress level of like eight to a memory to two or three in one or two sessions. And so to me that it's just very satisfying. So personally, you know, from my own selfish perspective, that's why I like doing trauma work because it's very, very rewarding when it's done well. You know, you actually just, this is the perfect transition um, to talk about the the partnership with Journey Collab, which um, is the, the, well, I'll let you talk about it. Talk about the partnership with, with Journey Collab um, and, and how that works. Thanks. Yeah. It's a really exciting journey. Collab um, is our partner in a research uh, study on alcohol use disorder using psychedelic therapy. Um, my understanding is right now we're looking at MDMA and psilocybin in the study. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's still in the works. So I can't, I mean, unfortunately, there's, I can't go into too much detail about how it's set up and and, you know, how this is going to roll out. But I can say that um, we are actually looking at how this can be implemented in 
a treatment center environment, which is sort of the focus of the study. It's also looking at efficacy, of course, for alcohol use disorder, but one of the other, I think, goals, which is, again, something that I'm really excited about is there are a lot of hard questions around the psychedelic space on how this can be done safely, effectively, responsibly, ethically uh, in a medical model. So I'm really excited to get in there and get my hands dirty and uh, really try to work it out. And can you talk about what makes the the setting of a uh, rehabilitation center different than, you know, like a clinical trial? Like we know that there's other companies that have been looking at um, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder in, in a clinical trial setting, but what makes it unique about doing it in rehab? Yeah, so I, I'm actually in a um, psychedelic-assisted education program right now through Nairobi University, which is, by the way, just an incredibly wonderful education. It's essentially like a postgraduate course, eight months um, of training and education in, in psychedelics therapy. And so we just finished the MAPS section of that. So we did a lot of talking about the research and in a research environment. And that was done, a lot of those st- studies were done in, in these sort of more outpatient environments. And um, and of course, there's also really rigorous and, and um, important screenings that happen for research models. Um, so people are a good fit for it in, in like an outpatient space. And so I think um, in practice, we need a lot of support to do this kind of work because it's destabilizing for people. Before it gets better, it gets a lot harder. Uh, I think, you know, and definitely in what we've I've learned in the MAPS um, protocol, but also, you know, just talking to people. So I, I just want to say one thing. I have a lot of opinions about this. <laughs> We love opinions. Yes, yes, we love opinions. We want to hear them. It's going to be like more factual. So I'm I'm going into the opinion realm and also going to talk a little bit about about like the underground work that's being done, which is acknowledged uh, throughout the space, even in clinical trials. You know, there's a lot of acknowledgement and discussion around the fact that people have been doing this kind of work in an underground capacity for a long time. So some of the information we have comes obviously from the underground. And there's a lot of gratitude, I think, in the space for people doing that. And I know there's a lot of um, controversy around it, too. But um, so so knowing that people get destabilized, uh, it's it's important to have a container. Mm-hmm. And I think for to in, just like trauma work, in order to be able to do this work with people who are a little bit more acute, it, it's in my opinion, it's imperative that we figure out how to do it in a treatment center environment where we have medical, we have um, behavioral health support, like uh, um, behavioral health technicians on the ground. We have someone there all night. And of course that they have that set up in research models. So for, uh, you know, the MAPS protocol, there's a night um, sitter or a night um, uh, person there who kind of helps keep an eye on the participant throughout the night and is available if, you know, they wake up and need to talk because, you know, for MDMA in particular, it is a little bit of a stimulant. So people often don't sleep well a night after an administration session. So it's important that there's support around. And so I think trying to build that in to an outpatient capacity on a larger level is going to be really difficult because everybody's going to need to have a network. Everybody wants to do this kind of work on an outpatient basis is going to need to have a network of like a team. So a, a physician, somebody who's, you know, people who are willing to support that participant and then the therapist, two therapists. So it's a lot, honestly, to build. 
Do you think the integration aspect of this type of work in therapy um, is a little misunderstood or even taken for granted? Um, you know, like I, I think there's this misconception um, and there's certainly, you know, the stories that we're trying to tell to change that, that perception that, you know, oh, I'm just going to take a pill I'm going to, I'm going to trip and I'm going to be fine. Um, and I think no, like, you know, integration happens on its own schedule, right? Like, so you're, you're never sure it could be in the middle of the night after an MDMA session. It could be. So can you talk a little bit about maybe that misconception of, um, really the integration process and how vital it is? Yeah. Okay. Again, some of this is going to be my opinion. Um, (laughs) We love it. <laughs> are saturated in a culture that is about taking a pill and quicker fixes. And I think not just like the the ethos of sort of our culture at large, but also our medical model is set up around that. You know, when we're looking, even just looking at getting uh, MDMA FDA approved, uh, there's a lot of you know discussion around. Is is the FDA going to try to you know make make it so that it's just the pill, and and it's not that they're trying. I shouldn't say it like that. They're trying to make it so that's that they just don't usually require or mandate therapy with anything because it's a, under a different umbrella. It's right. it's a, this is the first time they're doing it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it's that's a very sort of I think hotly debated and tricky part of this whole process is. We just aren't, you know, our system, our infrastructure for healthcare and mental health care isn't quite set up for this kind of marriage of a substance as a tool for therapy. They're oftentimes used together, like we have antidepressants and anti-anxiety and all these psychopharmacological interventions, mood stabilizers that can help people get more out of therapy. But there's always been this kind of separation of, you know, no physician is going to say, you know, you, you absolutely have to do therapy with this substance, they can highly recommend it, but it's not on the like prescription label. And so that's, I think, I think the, I think we can't, we almost can't help but have this discussion and argument because of how we're set up. I'm so glad that it's happening because that means we then get to take a a look at this, a deeper look at this and say, wow, maybe we actually do need to merge more and, and cooperate more and kind of build in infrastructures together with their psychotherapy and um, psychopharmacology in a, in a more, um, I think meaningful way than we have. And, um, this is an opportunity for us to look at that. I mean, we're literally saying that, you know, and there's research out there that proves that these substances do not work as well as they do when there's integration, when there's a psychotherapy component, it's just, that's just the facts that we're finding. And so it it opens a wonderful conversation, I think for us as a nation, (laughs) And, and you brought up the uh, medical model. So I thought, you know, this might be a good conversation to have about access and what, you know, a lot of barriers that that uh, patients face. And, and, you know, you're working with people in, with substance abuse disorder, um, alcohol use disorder. How do you help them manage costs when it comes to this? Because I think that's going to be something, you know, and maybe there isn't like a, a, a fix for it right now, especially as we're trying to figure out the the insurance side of this. So, you know, um, what are your thoughts on like, how do we manage this cost or how do we properly integrate this into the U.S. healthcare system so that it is something that's accessible and not just for those that can afford it? Yeah, it's such a good question. I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> 
I have to say a lot of us who are on the ground, the therapists that are getting these trainings, um, this is what we're scratching our heads about right now, you know, is very much like, how do we do this? How do we make it cost-effective? How do we bring it to more people? And MAPS is doing a wonderful job of just trying to get as many people trained as possible and not only therapists, I mean, different uh, people in different um, and specialties are getting trained, which at first I'm kind of like, oh my God, how are we going to manage this? But actually I think it's helpful because it, you know, the more people have education and the ability and skill to provide these services, the more I think we can get it to more people. Um, I want to talk for a second about sort of another one of our, um, uh, directions or like, um, goals for this research that we're doing with journey collab is outcomes. Um, outcomes is really important and APN as a whole is outcomes driven. We, we use ACORN assessments, which, um, are a measure of how our clients are doing while they're in treatment and also afterwards to make sure what we're doing. And ACORN is an acronym. Sorry. I just want to like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it stands for. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That was going to be my next question. We'll yeah. have that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it stands for, um, but I do know that it's used nationwide at least, and it measures um, outcomes from the person that's taking the ACORN assessments based off of an aggregate of outcomes from people, everybody, all the uh, patients who are using ACORN. So <clears throat> it's great. It gives us some great information. And there are many other ways to measure outcomes. That's just the one that we use. But we're committed to that because that's how we get payers on board is showing that this stuff works. And so the more we can track data, the more we can track long-term outcomes. And, and I'm veering now into my opinion. Uh, I think honestly, the way that we are going to be able to get um, more insurances on board for this kind of treatment is unfortunately it'll take a while, but is to show long-term success, which shows how much money gets saved. Yeah over the lifetime of somebody who would otherwise be back in treatment four times, have had to go to the ER four times, you know, and, and is not able to work. Right. I mean, there's just so many cost benefits in doing what might be expensive treatment on the front end and helping somebody actually feel better without ongoing treatment in the same way that we've had to do, um, before psychedelics were an option in the space. I mean, I think it can be done without psychedelics. I think it's like insurance companies just like automatically approve long lengths of stay in treatment, especially residential and PHP. We could get some similar outcomes, but the psychedelic space is just like a, a supercharge for that, I think, which is really exciting. So the answer to the question is there isn't a great way right now, but we're all looking at and working on how to solve that problem. I mean, there's talk about doing group instead of individual work in this space, which I think is really exciting and interesting and also probably problematic way of doing it that we'll have to sort of figure out how yeah. to make it effective and safe. But, you know, there's just people are getting creative and trying to figure it out and, and insurance is going to be a huge player. And so fingers crossed that we can get enough data to support it, that insurance, you know, sees the benefit. That's such a, a theme. I'm I'm reading um, uh, Peter Atia's book. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Um, called Outlive, um, and it's the kind of the longevity movement, and you know, really kind of turning the the medical model on its head and being like there needs to be more um, in done in prevention um, versus you know, like, like once you're pre-diabetic, it's a little late, right. To be like lifestyle changing and all that stuff. So I think that's very, um, 
there's just a lot of similarities in kind of what happens in the the mental health care model too, right? Like, you know, it's it's enormously expensive to to have people rotating inside and and out of hospitals, and um, you know, I, I just think that I just think that could be done better. But that's a whole nother podcast. Um, I kind of want to talk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, like, there's just. You know, I'm reading the book and it's it's just it's so frustrating and it's you know, we just we're just doing it. We're we're not doing it right. We're practicing medicine from a century ago and it's just not Yeah. And I think in one ways we've shot ourselves in the foot because we are so good at being reactive. Like we have great emergency medicine, we have great like heroic measures. I mean, we're good at that in this country. So right. I think it's 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 provided us the leeway to kind of be lazy and and let go of this idea of like, oh, we actually have to do preventative things too. And I'm right. speaking for myself also, you know, there are times where I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, I don't you know, there's medication out there. There are procedures out there, like, right. And it's just, it's just kind of the mentality that we have to sort of flip. Yeah. Well, and it's also about, um, and we're veering a little bit, but about, um, making the, making your life, um, better and worth, uh, worth living, making those, those extra years you might get through, you know, our, our modern medicine and making those years, um, fulfilling and, you know, healthy. And, and part of that is mental health. And we, we like, I, I do think we're slowly getting to the place where mental health care is being seen as part of physical health care. Um, and, and, and I, and I just think it needs, there's more, more of that, please. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, I joke, I joke, I joke, I kid that uh, mental health, behavioral health and emotional health is like the redheaded stepchild of medicine. Maybe we shouldn't put that on the podcast, but that's it totally is. Well, and that's fine because I am a redheaded stepchild. So we can say that. <laughs> it's how it feels. It's like, the, and it, that's a terrible analogy because I'm like in childhood trauma and that's terrible, but it's, that's, that's how it feels. It often yeah. feels we're kind of like the last ditch effort or like, you know, an option when we could be saving a lot of money. Well, and it's so integrated too. the, the, the way, you know, the way that we understand trauma and we understand how people are self-medicating and, you know, like, so it, it does leach into the physical aspects of it. Like someone who's dealing with alcohol use disorder, isn't just dealing with, you know, a bad hangover, you know, they're dealing with like trauma to their body and, and, you know, they're, they're, it's just, it's all interconnected. And I don't think that our, our, the modern medical model understands that or, or they may understand it, but I I don't know how they're going to fix it. Yeah. It's, it's an infrastructure change and we're getting there. It just takes time. Yeah. Um, so I do want to shift and talk um, a little bit about ketamine because that is the one, um, psychedelic that is legal. I mean, and people don't even all agree that it's a psychedelic, but for now, the point of this conversation, we're going to assume that it is, um, and that it is, um, and I do believe that it is, but, uh, it is prescribed, you know, off label. And there's a lot of, um, clinics that have, that have popped up, um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about how you guys are integrating that into your, um, into, with your patient treatment. Yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been very interesting. So, uh, ketamine is under, a lot of people are putting it under a psychedelic umbrella because I think it does have psychedelic qualities to it. It can at certain doses, but it's also very interesting that it's, you know, being a dissociative analgesic too, right? So the dissociative quality I found to be just in practice with people helpful. Um, 
and I've even used ketamine on with people who have trait dissociation. So like their own, um, psychological dissociative, um, symptoms, right. People who have trauma often have dissociation with it. And there was a lot, we were, you know, as a team kind of just rolling around about how to, should we, can we, how do we, and we did start on a low dose with this person or a couple of people actually, and, and then ended up being able to go up. And when I talked to the people who we were working with, oftentimes they would say to me, I can tell the difference between the ketamine dissociation and my own dissociation. So it's a slightly different quality to it. And this is just, you know, anecdotal. Um, but it was very interesting to have these conversations and to start implementing ketamine. It's really used right for, you know, major depression and suicidality. So that's what we've seen in terms of the research, the most benefit for, uh, I think people are also seeing benefit for post-traumatic stress disorder too, uh, based off that, that dissociative quality and this, and the psychedelic properties where we can kind of look at something, a past experience or a negative core belief with just enough distance that we can tolerate being with it in the session. Whereas a lot of times without a tool like ketamine or another psychedelic, it, it's just so overwhelming for people that they really can't tolerate being with that in session. And that's what takes so much time to get there. So I, I'm, we're, you know, I think there's a lot of promise for PTSD too with ketamine. We're implementing it, um, you know, at the lodge inpatient and outpatient. So, and then we have some other clinics that are offering ketamine. All of our ketamine program options include therapy of some kind. Um, the therapists that we have on board that are not trained to do uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, so CAP, are doing integration sessions after, like the, in the 24-hour, 48-hour period where there's that increased neuroplasticity. Um, and then myself and one other therapist are um, able to be present with the patient during ketamine and do more traditional ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, which I've, I, you know, it's variable. Some people are very quiet and go inward during ketamine administration sessions. And so we're kind of throwing, you know, just it's case by case in terms of what's most helpful for that person. It may not be helpful to have me in there when they're very quiet and inward for the whole journey and, and they get more out of the after integration session. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot, we're learning a lot. And, and we're implementing it at the lodge, um, you know, during a person's inpatient stay, which is very exciting uh, to help with their depression and suicidality and potentially PTSD. And then we're offering it on an outpatient basis. We have a really robust, wonderful telehealth team. And so we can pair our ketamine um, administration with telehealth therapists for people who are outpatient and can't necessarily get to a clinic or if we aren't offering uh, in-person therapy in those particular locations, we have the telehealth team, which can, they do an incredible job. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the, the business case for, you know, going back to what you guys are doing with the, um, you know, MDMA and LSD or I'm sorry, not LSD psilocybin, um, for the collab with journey club is, is your team's experience with ketamine kind of what allowed you guys to, feel com more comfortable with, um, taking on, you know, being a, a trial site, um, for that, because, you know, we've, we have talked with other, uh, ketamine offices where they're waiting for the approval to come first before they start, you know, trying to figure out how, how can they start integrating it? They want that, that guidance there, but you guys are seem a little bit more comfortable. So can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I think I, one of the reasons I love working here is that we are we are a company that's very innovative and kind of willing to be first. And I think that's important in the space because first is risky, but first also helps other people implement these things. And so therefore exponentially we can do, we can do more good in the field, which is something that, you know, as a, as a company, our sort of mission and goals and values have always been to break down stigma, to, you know, be, to show that we can provide exceptional care. I mean, with the ACORN outcomes tracking measure that I was talking about, I mean, we're consistently in the top 5% of that without psychedelics before we started doing ketamine. So we've always kind of had this vision of excellence and raising the bar. And so, yes, I think ketamine is a, is definitely like a gateway, <laughs> you know, to, to implementing different substances. But I won't say that like we thought about it because of ketamine. I think this is something that we've been really forward thinking on since the conversation started, you know, uh, Noah, who I think you guys might've talked to already, or Noah Norheimer is our CEO. Um, he's just got this incredible vision of how we can improve and have more success in this field. And so, yeah, we've been really, I mean, the conf this is something that we're excited about and that we've been really willing to do since the beginning of hearing about the opportunities. Um, in terms of the, you mentioned telehealth, um, and, and the, the idea there is actually something that could also, you know, really help with cost savings and, and stuff like that. Um, what are the parameters for like using telehealth in with someone who is dealing with trauma and maybe integrating a therapy session, uh, uh, ketamine assisted therapy session? What's, what do you see the role there for telehealth? Yeah, I think it can play an enormously helpful role for access and um, cost effectiveness. Um, I will clarify that for our ketamine programs that are including telehealth, we definitely aren't like sending ketamine to people's homes. Um, we have them come in and we do the administration in the clinic. We have a lot of parameters around safety and making sure they have a safe other that can drive them home and stay with them. And so, you know, we're pretty careful about all of that because we know that, you know, our telehealth team is not going to be there in person with them, obviously. And so we want to make sure that we're providing all that structure and safety. And then, yes, I think, I think, you know, there's, I remember when COVID first started and a lot of us started doing more telehealth in the field, um, before, you know, outside of psychedelic space. And there was a lot of discussion between myself and other trauma therapists in particular around how are we going to do this? Is it going to be as effective? What are the safe, you know, safe, safety concerns? And yes, there are, it is, there are more safety concerns. So we are, we do have to be more cautious in a telehealth environment, but what I've found and what I've heard from a lot of my colleagues, and again, this is opinion, is that it's been, it's been effective. I mean, we're able to do good deep work. I mean, there are people who are doing EMDR via telehealth, which I, I don't know how to do. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's great because then people have, you know, who are in rural areas or can't necessarily afford to come in um to an in-person session or drive that far or whatever can get help. So I'm a I'm a fan. And I think there's, you know, some interesting things we've been throwing around as a team here, some ideas around 
you know, like a telehealth program that includes like maybe two intensives a year, right? Where we can build in some in-person sort of intensive work and they're already in a telehealth infrastructure within under our umbrella within our family. So I think there's a lot of like really cool, exciting new ways that we could um, build out a telehealth program. I mean, even in the psychedelic space, we could have retreats, you know, I don't know. I'm throwing around ideas. This isn't necessarily APN approved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, I think it's, it's interesting that you have, um, you know, your, your, your therapist hat, but also your, you know, innovative entrepreneurial, like, you know, pushing people to do, you know, to, to innovate. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit, you have your own podcast, um, called therapy unboxed. Um, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about it. You have, um, you have an audience here who is, likes podcasts apparently. Um, so go ahead and, and plug it. Yeah. Thanks. No, I never thought I would do a podcast. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the idea was floated and, I love to help educate people. So I jumped on it. Um, Therapy Unboxed is a podcast that really deals with educating consumers. I think there's been this unnecessary sort of shroud of mystery around what therapy is and what we do and how do we magically help you feel better, right? And so I- not magic. <laughs> I know I'm blowing a lot of like the mist, the like fun mystery around it. But I think honestly, it's just important for people to know what questions to ask, to know what might be helpful for them. Um, of course, I can't give anybody advice over a podcast, right? But I can provide general education. So we talk about things like what is CBT? What is psychodrama? You know, what what does it mean to hold space for somebody? Just these concepts that, that as therapists we throw around a lot. I and, and honestly, the idea came because. I check myself a lot on terms and theories that I just kind of like throw around, but then I'm like, wait, do I really understand this? Do I need to like back up and slow down and get some, you know, in, information from a, someone who knows this topic better or read or something, because it's easy. We're busy. We have, you know, full schedules. It's so easy to just kind of lose sight of how important it is to kind of go a little deeper on some of these things. So that's the purpose of the podcast. I mean, it's the audience is really the general public, people who might be seeking mental health treatment or family members of people who are seeking treatment. And, you know, also I think some clinicians tune in too. It's just interesting conversation. I have guests on who are uh, experts, right? Because Certainly I'm not an expert in everything. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to like, hear from, you know, people who know and have studied that, you know, whatever the topic is. And so season one is out, we're working on season two, season two and I'm excited and um, yeah, tune in. Yeah. Fantastic. And we'll have a link in the uh, show notes for all of our listeners to be able to uh, check out therapy unboxed. Um, but Lana, one of the things I wanted to, to, really get your perspective on as a therapist, you know, going back to looking at the, the psychedelics industry as a whole, what has you most excited about where this industry is, is headed? Is there any one um, particular, you know, development that you're following closely? Uh, I think what has me most excited is also what has me most nervous, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think so. Not so much specific. I mean, obviously I'm interested in PTSD and trauma because that's my field. So MDMA for PTSD has been 
you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in and been following closely and also interested in what we're going to find for psilocybin for that, for trauma and PTSD too. Um, as a whole, I think, um, I'm very excited that we, it's not a magic bullet, but we might be finding a tool that can help us do the hard work that we've been doing the long way for a long time in a shorter amount of time. So people don't drop out of treatment and care out of frustration and feeling overwhelmed. And that also makes me nervous because, you know, we are a culture that's always looking for a magic bullet and psychedelics aren't a magic bullet. And, um, I I have like two pretty prominent, uh, views. One is from like my personal, very excited, innovative, you know, I'm just somebody who really likes to dive into new stuff like this and figure out how to make it work and help people. And then I also have my very strong clinician hat where we do have to be cautious. We do have to be careful. You know, I think the rush is out of excitement. And also we might need to like slow it down a little to make sure that we do this well. Honestly, I have a lot of fear around um, there's so much of a skeptical eye because we're looking at, you know, drugs that are scheduled for abuse and there's been this war on drugs. And, you know, I think there's a super critical eye from the community, from culture, I should say, not so much the psychedelic community, but from culture and government, um, that one wrong move and we're in real risk of having everything be shut down. So I have a lot of anxiety around the excitement. And also I have a lot of love for the people who are super excited and want to move this forward because we, you know, I don't know, maybe I feel like we have one shot at this. Maybe I'm not correct. I hope I'm not correct on that. Um, but we do need to be extra careful because this is, you know, interesting territory that we're in. And it's people's lives, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, you're dealing with people who are traumatized and have been traumatized and, you know, yeah, it's, we can't, yeah, there is that responsibility that they can't fail, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, there is no perfect therapy and there is no perfect medication. Every medication, if it works, has side effects and therapy is difficult and sometimes makes people feel worse before they feel better. Sometimes the therapies that we use don't work and people don't make it. So I do have this sort of, I mean, yes, we need to be very careful. And there's so much suffering and death out there that I do have a little, like, I do have a little more forgiveness and leeway for like, okay, we just, we need to do better right. and we do better, honestly. Cause you know, I'm doing a, I'm speaking at um, the symposiums on addiction disorders this year. So we did West coast, um, Cape Cod is coming up. We have Rocky mountain and East coast. And my presentation is on this topic. It's on the dropout rates for, for trauma treatment, um, the cost overall of like hospitalizations and you know the cost to the community people not making it the rates of suicide and deaths overdoses and how you know we have to look at this it's hard to look at but we do have to you know kind of look in the mirror and say hey um we're we're losing a lot of people and a lot of people are falling through the cracks even with our best efforts right and so we and so that's always kind of that interesting tension between safety and movement and and yes both are super duper important because it's people's lives and you know as clinicians we're very well aware of that we lose people and it's tragic and breaks our hearts and um you know one time is too many yeah 
Yeah. I mean, Michael Pollan talks a lot about that or has been talking a lot about that too, that, you know, he had this book out and there was so much excitement and he's like, okay, but (laughs) you know, there's, there's, it doesn't work for everybody. And I think, you know, we need to have that kind of sober, understand sober and not in the meaning of sober um, under yeah, that understanding of, you know, it's not, it's not the, this like amazing silver bullet. That's going to be wonderful for everybody. Um, so yeah, well, um, we would love to have you back. Um, maybe in, you know, once we, uh, have a little bit of clarity on, on MDMA assisted therapy and, and, you know, let's see what happens in the next year. Um, but this has been really, really wonderful and we so appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and super fun. Thanks to Lana Seiler of All Points North Lodge. Check them out at apn.com. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to chat with us, please find us on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or email us greenrush at kcsa.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take. Cannabis! Cannabis!